Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to the Secret Resume podcast, hosted by me, Melody Moore. In this podcast, we explore the people, places, and experiences that have shaped my guests, those which have influenced who they are as people and where they are in their work life today. You can listen in as we have a rich exploration of often unexamined and undiscussed but very important aspects of their lives, or as I like to call it, their secret resume. My guest today is Lisa Hampton. Lisa has been working in the world of events for around 20 years, and her company Barnstorm Global specialises in moving events and campaigns. Most recently, Lisa was the head of the Birmingham 2022 Commonwealth Games Queen's Baton Relay, which visited 72 nations and territories across the Commonwealth. She has also delivered global trophy tours for a number of major sporting events and managed the Paralympic Torch Relay for 2012. Lisa describes herself as loving a complex project and delivering once-in-a-lifetime experiences. And I can't wait for you to hear about some of those. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you for joining me on a very sunny February afternoon, which is very exciting. I have the sun shining on me, as do you. Um, So, yeah, really excited to talk to you. And we've got, I think, some very interesting parts of your life to talk about. I just wondered if you wanted to start off by just saying what it is that you do. What is what is your job? Yeah, this is always a difficult question for me to answer, actually. So I feel like you started with something really hard. So I um, am an event manager. um, And I think if you're an event manager, you know that that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But my specialism, I suppose, is the world of kind of moving events. So do a lot of relays, trophy tours, roadshow type events, lots of kind of random pop up activities on street corners and in sports stadiums and we do that internationally so not just here in the UK but but all around the world um so yeah it's quite diverse and wide-ranging I would say and your company's called and our company's called Barnstorm Global and yeah we look after lots of different global events um most recently we've uh, been working with World Rugby on their trophy tours and we've also just finished working on the Commonwealth Games on the Queen's Battle Relay and why Barnstorm out of interest so barnstorm um so barnstorming is um a term they use in the u.s quite a lot and it describes like a moving presidential campaign so when there's a lot of pop-up activities that happen so when they're when they're kind of during the campaign trail those those events that's barnstorming so the idea with the name was that it was kind of describing a lot of what we do and we do a lot of things like that without presidents but i didn't know that I yeah. thought barnstorming was when they were strapped to the wing of a plane. Is that not barnstorming? As well? No, I think that's air walking, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I just made that up. <laughs> I didn't know that about presidential campaigns. Uh, interesting. Yeah, so I think it's from um, kind of the olden days when they used to rock up to a barn in a village or a town and oh. and encourage people to come along. So like travelling shows and yes, travelling travelling campaigns. There you go. Brilliant. I did not know that. So um, I'm going to take you right back and we're going to walk <laughs> back towards back to the future um, in terms of where you are now. Let's start early on 
university in a gap year, which way round did they come? Gap year first. Gap year first. Primarily because I didn't know what to do for uni. So I remember being sort of 17 at college and all of my friends had applied for their six universities or whatever it was that you were supposed to do and all had a really clear vision of what they were going to do and what they wanted to study. I literally had no idea, absolutely none. And I was always kind of a pretty good all-rounder. There wasn't really ever particularly anything that I was brilliant at. There wasn't really anything that I was particularly terrible at. I could kind of do math and I could kind of do English and I could kind of do languages and I could kind of do most things. So I didn't ever have that thing where I was like, well, if I don't know what to do, I'm really good at math. So I'll just go and do that. And I remember that I was just completely stressed out. I didn't know what to do. And I just felt like, you know, there's a lot of pressure to kind of decide at 17 what what you wanted to do for the rest of your life. Now, obviously, I realise hardly anyone actually does anything related to their degree, actually. Mm. You should just pick something you like the sound of. So I just couldn't decide. And I think my parents said, you don't have to decide. Won't you? Don't you just take a gap year and you can apply again in a year and just take a bit of time to kind of think it through. So that's what I did. And I was working at Legoland in Windsor when I was kind of a, at school and at college at the weekends in the summer. And so I was really lucky and they offered me a a job to go and kind of do kind of a supervisor job, I suppose, um, in my gap year, which I did and really liked it. And kind of through that got into a bit of some of the park management stuff and some duty management and some kind of event stuff and really enjoyed that idea of having a kind of daily event where people, thousands of people arrived, had a really great time. We dealt with any problems and challenges that came up and then they left. And my mum worked for an airline for a long time. And I always remember her saying when I was younger that she she really loved this sense of at the end of the day, just close the door. And then tomorrow is a brand new day. It's not like having an office job where you've got an in-tray and that stuff carries over. That sense of you might have a terrible, terrible day. We have loads of complaints. Everything breaks down and it's a disaster. But actually. Once that day is done, tomorrow is a brand new day. And I really liked that that kind of sense. And that's what pushed me towards thinking about events as a kind of career, I guess. That constantly new every day. Yeah. Creating that that idea of creating experiences for people. And yeah, giving and once in a lifetime kind of experiences for people. Mm. There's nothing like that, I don't think. Yeah. So for some kids going to Legoland is gonna be like the highlight of their year. For some adults as well, I think. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> How did that lead on to what you decided to study at university then? So I, so in those days, in the olden days, um, there weren't a lot of event management degrees. Now there are quite a lot of those. Oh, so it's yeah. quite unusual to find a standalone event management degree. So I actually did sports management, which covered off kind of business elements. So events was part of that. We did law, we did human resources, we did psychology, and we did kind of sports coaching and really know how I came to to the sport element. But I think in my head, I'd always wanted to work in sports events, kind of, I liked that idea of of those kind of great global sporting celebrations, I suppose. Were you sporty yourself? Not really, no. So it's a bit random, but... (laughs) I don't think there wasn't. So again, in those days, your sort of options to do something similar were kind of tourism management Mm. or more on the kind of sports and leisure management side. And I think I didn't really feel that I kind of 
the, the tourism side wasn't really right for me. I didn't really want to look understand about how to run a travel agent or that kind of side. So the leisure side of it and the sports side of it was more interesting to me, really. So it was kind of a happy accident, really, I think. One of the things I'm really interested in on the podcast is, you know, people, places and experiences. Were there any people that kind of influenced you at this particular time? When I was at Legoland, I was so lucky to be surrounded by a lot of kind of young, dynamic people. Lots of people who were doing, there were lots of students, lots of young people. And I think what, I don't know that I definitely would have gone to uni actually. And and I think one of the driving forces behind that was meeting all of the people that I worked with in that kind of what essentially was a very studenty environment who were having the best time ever. I think that, that the danger for me as a person when I took that gap year was that potentially I might never have taken that step to university, which isn't a, a bad thing if you decide it's not for you. But that that sort of sense of being surrounded by people who were having a great time and kind of really enjoying themselves pushed me to do that, I think. It definitely influenced my location, my choice of city, I think, as well, because there were people there who were studying. So I studied in Cardiff. And there were lots of people who studied in Cardiff and loved it. Uh, so yeah, I think that's, I don't know that I wouldn't say that at that point, I could identify kind of one influential role model. But I think the the sort of the feeling of kind of belonging, I think, in that environment with lots of young people and being part of that team was something I hadn't experienced before in that way. And I think teamwork is quite a strong ethic that I have now. Ethos that I think it's really important. So I think, yeah, that's not really a very robust answer, but I think that sense of being in a place where I fitted was really strong there. I think you said to me before that you felt that the events management is a good fit for your skill set. Do you want to say some more about that? So I think, I think that's right. I think I just kind of, I respond quite well to having a deadline. So that idea of like a really solid deadline. So whether you're ready or not on the 1st of July, everyone is going to arrive for your event. So it's like a proper deadline, isn't it? It's not like yeah. a made up deadline. I, I work a lot with deadlines that people have chosen or organizations have chosen. And you know that it's chosen because it often changes. So it's yeah. very real until it's not real anymore and it's moved. A bit different with events, isn't it? So different. And I think so some of the events that I've worked on, so thinking about the Olympic torch relay or the Paralympic torch relay, if that torch doesn't make it to the opening ceremony for the games everybody isn't going to know about that so you have to be kind of good with a deadline I think which is always kind of good for me and I I think it just comes back to that idea of creating those experiences for people and wanting people to have a bit of escapism and you know everything's quite serious isn't it in life a lot of the time so being able to deliver things for people that they'll remember forever it might be the hundred thousandth time that I've looked at a trophy or seen a relay runner or whatever that that person will remember that for the rest of their life so it's a really special thing to be part of I think do you like deadlines like how do you feel <laughs> when you have one I I would much rather work towards a fixed deadline I find it really annoying if those those kind of fake deadlines where people are like yes can you get that done by Friday and then actually everyone just carries on going until Monday um, which I'm definitely guilty of sometimes but I would much rather work to a fixed deadline I think 
I don't know. I think in my line of work, it's they're sort of a given, aren't they, really? Mm-hmm. And I think you have to have strategies for coping with that, which is, you know, these are my must-dos and these are my nice-to-haves maybe. So I'll get all of my must-dos done. And then if I've got anything else, then I'll get my nice-to-haves done. Sometimes maybe you just have to go with hitting the deadline. Do you think for a perfectionist, it would be much more difficult to, you know, if they had to have absolutely everything, not just the must-haves, but the nice-to-haves as well? I feel like I'm doing myself a disservice by saying that I don't always get the (laughs) nice-to-haves done. I think in life, you you can't be a perfectionist because life throws up things that you could never have predicted. So you or I can be as organized as we like and have everything ready and have our perfect Gantt chart that tells us exactly what we need to do every day between now and the 1st of July. But the reality is, you know, life happens. People don't deliver what they say. Somebody breaks something or, you know, somebody is ill or, you know, life happens. COVID happens. COVID happens, a really good (laughs) example. So you can't, you know, in an ideal world, we'd get everything done right and it would be perfect. But the reality of life is that's just not the way things go. So take me to the time when you were working for English Heritage. So English Heritage was my first proper events job. So my uh, so I finished university, I came back and I got my first proper job in big London, uh, working in the events team big at English City. Heritage. Big city. Um, and it was amazing. It was one of the best jobs ever. I learned so much. What's brilliant about the English Heritage events team is that they really do kind of everything it's a very full service role so they would start with kind of a field and figure out a whole program of events for that castle stately home field location and then have to bring everything in to deliver that event and take it all away again at the end so it's quite unusual to find programs and jobs that are as kind of full service as that Lots of kind of venue-based jobs. Your a lot of your venue is there already. Mm. Um, so what was brilliant about that job was so varied, and I learned so much. Not least working with reenactment societies, which is quite unusual in itself. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we did battle reenactments and jousts, and basically events to bring history to life at those amazing properties. So yeah, great opportunity to be creative and to really learn everything about the world of event planning and delivery basically it was brilliant and again were there any that particularly stand out that you know were funny or learning experiences or people who you know influenced you I mean so many stories that I could tell about <laughs> that job um so I mean I think one of the things that I learned was that things don't always go right really and actually that's a really important skill to learn how to deal with that and I could talk about loads of different things so we did quite a lot of I guess high risk things so lots of things with horses lots of things with fire so lots of historical things have fire so yeah we had one year I was kind of running an arena show and someone fell off a horse and broke his leg and just one of those kind of things that happened and I turned around and I was kind of talking to him and I turned back around and there was a whole like tent on fire behind me and oh I just goodness. remember being like oh my word is that tent supposed to be on fire no I don't think so and sort of put out fire and there was a kind of you know it, it was just kind of crazy and 
things happened and we always very robustly risk assessed everything and so we had all of our mitigating plans in place but sometimes those things happen and however well you plan for things and manage things and you can do everything properly but sometimes things happen so I think that was one of the biggest kind of learnings from that job really was how to cope and have a bit of resilience for actually it's pouring with rain and no one is going to turn up so you're not going to make your targets in any way and that's nothing you can do about it or something catches fire and you just put the fire out and then you move on and it's not the end of the world well it might be but it's hopefully not so yeah I think that was those were my biggest kind of practical learnings but I think in terms of kind of people skills and the people that I work with what's really interesting about a big organization like EH is it's so varied so you've got everyone kind of we were kind of quite commercial in our thinking. So part of our job was about encouraging people to come to properties and visit and buy tickets. But we also had a kind of important job in terms of telling some of the untold stories of those properties as well. And then across the organisation, the different kind of types of people that you work with who are all doing really important jobs. So you might have an archaeologist, for example, or a curator who's responsible for the fabric of the building and the fabric of the site and then you come on to trample 25 horses through to do like a joust. So learning how to navigate, how to kind of make things happen in that landscape when everyone's got quite different views on things was really interesting and challenging, I suppose. That landscape of trying to understand what does everybody need and how do we work together? Mm-hmm. Because actually those archaeologists and curators, if we didn't bring people in to enjoy the sites, and bring in the kind of the money that keeps the properties going, there wouldn't be anything to look after. So it's kind of how do you, working through how you managed something so multifaceted was really interesting, I think. And seeing the bigger picture for yeah everybody. Yeah. Concerned. Interesting. And I guess yeah. that, well, we'll come to that, but that kind of plays out in some of the bigger things that you've done. Yes. Yeah. And I can see how that would be a, a useful skill. So yeah. next, Thames Valley Police is yep. the, the next, was that the next move you went from English Heritage to Thames Valley Police? More or less, yeah. So I, um, I've um, been in English Heritage for I think five years maybe and I've been really lucky. I'd managed to progress. I started out as an assistant and I went, became an event manager and I'd been really fortunate. I'd worked at loads of different properties and been really lucky to be part of a brilliant team but really I was looking kind of for my next challenge I think at that point and I was really lucky just to happen upon a kind of advert for a job at Thames Valley Police as an operations consultant. So police forces have operations teams who look after usually pre-planned and spontaneous events and usually those teams are made up of police officers and kind of former police officers Uh, but kind of about the time that I was looking there was a bit of a drive to try and bring in people from outside of the police family to kind of bring some different skills I suppose into those teams. And Lisa what would a pre-planned or spontaneous event be in that? So a pre-planned event would be so for example in our team we looked after so I was based in Oxford and we looked after Oxfordshire and so some of the things we looked after as pre-planned events would be things like Henley Regatta Mm-hmm. So when you work on an event, you quite often go to a safety advisory group, which is kind of a council-led multi-agency planning group. And there would always be like a police representative that sits on that, a fire representative. And, and the job of that 
safety advisory group and those individuals is to kind of assess some of those plans and work with the event organizers to make sure that they've kind of considered everything that's that they need to so that was kind of the sort of job that I did around pre-planned events spontaneous events are things like that aren't planned so protests we used to look after so if we got a notification that there might be a protest somewhere we would very quickly have to kind of look at some planning options around that what policing resources might we need to kind of deal with that and how would we make sure that they had all of the information that they needed about those kind of spontaneous events so yeah things like protests and kind of so big fires or major incidents those would be like mm. spontaneous events things that you didn't expect you might have had a plan for those but you didn't expect them to happen if that makes sense right so you may have had a contingency plan or if there yeah. was ever a fire out yeah x yeah yeah that's yeah putting it into practice yeah so quite different then to some degree in terms of what you were doing before Yes, very different, I would say. Really, for me, just like a massive privilege. Mm. What an opportunity to go into that world and to kind of sit in that space. Um, and kind of, I was pretty blown away by the whole thing, really. So it was, I was there for a couple of years and it was such an amazing opportunity, really. And I think it was interesting integrating into a primarily police team. That makes it sound negative, not in a negative way, but it was just a very different way of working for everyone. So being in a police kind of hierarchy was really interesting, not something that you're used to if you don't, you're not in that kind of landscape. I remember on my second day, the superintendent came into the office and everyone stood up and I was like, what is happening? So there was just a lot to kind of get your head around, I think. Was um, um, was it a mixed gender team? Was it mostly men? I, I guess I have a, a bias that that team may have been mostly men, but I could be completely wrong. So it was it was all men. So it was three men, I think, and two women. And the two of us who came in to do that job from the outside were women. Mm-hmm. Um, but we had a female inspector, actually, who was kind of headed up the team mm-hmm. overall, which was amazing. She was amazing. Um, and so she was quite a role model for us. And she was it was brilliant to watch her operate in that space. I did not have a bad I didn't have a bad experience in in a kind of gender kind of way at all I think there was more of a challenge around not being a police officer and not having had that police training background and I don't so I think this sort of I think when you're a police officer and some massive generalization that you're used to kind of having a lot of rules and a lot of kind of written down legislation so sometimes you think about things in a specific way because it's just the way you've you've kind of been trained really and it's really important that you do think about things in a very specific way and in a consistent way and I think one of the challenges was that I probably operated in more areas more gray areas so when people would challenge things sometimes I would ask more questions and and it was just a kind of change for everyone just a way of working but I was really lucky we had a brilliant team and Claire our inspector was amazing and she was very kind of forward thinking and she pushed us and challenged us to not accept the status quo and you know just because we'd always said no to that doesn't mean we always should and we should think about it but I think that that it was just a massive privilege and it definitely made me realize that life is short mm-hmm. and actually you know all the years I'd spent worrying about bits of grass and 
whether I'd quite got the historic proportions of something quite right. That's important, absolutely. But then when you deal in a landscape where terrible things happen to people, you realise that some things are not as important maybe as sometimes they seem in that moment. So it was a real privilege. I have had a similar experience. I started my career in the health service. I was a graduate Mm -hmm. trainee and then a manager. And I remember I'd been there about four or five years and then I went off and did something else. I went lived in Canada and I was working in a hotel briefly. I remember this American woman shouting at me because there wasn't a flannel in her room. Um, I just found it really difficult to, to get that anyone could get so angry about something that having worked in a in an area where people were very sick and dying to to somebody being annoyed because they didn't have a flannel. I just mm. found that switch really difficult in terms mm. of, you know, what's important. And I think that's what's amazing about the emergency services and the health service actually is they work day in and day out to make sure that people can feel like that that a flannel is the most important thing in the world. What an amazing job they do. And I definitely think it gave me a totally different perspective. I think I've lived quite a privileged upbringing, you know, and not in a ridiculous way, but, you know, I'm very fortunate to have a brilliant family and, you know, have had a really great life. And, yeah, it just made me really open my eyes, I think, to, to what else there is out there and the struggles that people have, really. Do you think that that experience of working in the police with the police has given you a way of understanding and talking to, because in the events that you do now and did subsequently, you have to deal with the police inevitably, especially if you're doing like rolling road events, they're, they're inevitably going to be involved. Do you feel that that gave, has given you an understanding or a way of working with the police that maybe would be more difficult if you hadn't had that experience I hope so I, th- I think so. Ask them. <laughs> yeah I think I think you'd have to ask them I don't know what they would say I think what it gave what it gave me that I didn't have before was the sense that police officers are people too and that kind of idea that just because someone turns up in uniform doesn't mean they're some kind of terrifying monster and actually genuinely Everyone just wants something to be good and be safe and go well. So I think it gave me, it's definitely given me a better understanding of that perspective, which I wouldn't have had, I don't think. I would probably have been more inclined to think, why are you nitpicking over that one tiny thing? But actually what sits behind that police uniform is a lot of experience of a lot of different things and and an understanding of how people work that maybe you don't have if you haven't been in that in that world um and I would never say that I was really in that world I had a very small job in a very specific area um so yeah I, I hope so and I think it it kind of helps me to understand how to navigate that I think but you probably have to ask them and they may not agree <laughs> So let that takes us on then to, you know, that you mentioned at the beginning a number of big road events. This is what I've written in my notes. You may or yeah. may not call them that. Really big events that you've been involved in. And I just wondered if you could tell us a bit about that. What is it that you've done? You know, I mean, I'm amazed some of the things that you've done. I think they're so interesting and exciting. So tell us a bit about, drop some names. <laughs> so... I think 
So what I always remember about my journey into kind of sporting events and those road-based events was in 2005, the day that we won the London Olympics. So I was still working at English Heritage at that point, based in the West End. And I remember going out with all of my office colleagues to Trafalgar Square and being in Trafalgar Square for the moment when they said the winner, you know, the, the host city for the 2012 Olympics is London. And I remember at that moment, and it's probably one of the only moments in my life where I can really recall a kind of decision. I always fall into things, really. I don't ever make any real decisions, I don't think. And I remember saying to myself, I am going to work on those Olympics in 2012. And I'm going to figure out seven years from now, I'm going to figure out how to get there. And then I kind of went back to my job and I didn't really think any more about it. And then sort of as the Olympic jobs were kind of starting to come up, in the kind of couple of years prior to the games, I started just keeping my eyes peeled and what was kind of coming up. And don't think I did a very good job because I missed quite a lot of the jobs I think I probably would have been quite good at. Um, and then just happened to see a job for the Paralympics, um, actually. So the, heading up the Paralympic torch relay uh, and applied for that. And I also applied for another job at the same time. And I got interviewed for both of those jobs at the same time and was just. It was, it was really, it was just kind of one of those things that just sometimes you know how you just read a job description and you think this just reads like me. And a lot of the things that were on there and I was lucky at that point, I had my kind of police experience. I had my public event experience. I'd done lots of kind of unusual things, I think, thanks to my police kind of job and was lucky enough to be offered the Paralympic torch relay job. And I remember at the time people asking me, why do you want to work on the Paralympics? Why wouldn't you want to work on the, you know, proper Olympics in inverted commas? And I think at the time I didn't, I hadn't sought out a Paralympic job. I wasn't thinking that I wanted to work on the Paras, but it was just kind of one of those things that that happened. Looking back on it now, I would always say the Paralympics would always be my choice over the Olympics because it's much more friendly. There's much more opportunity because it's so much smaller. But yeah, at the time I kind of just fell into it. So my job was to kind of uh, look after the planning, really, and the delivery of the Paralympic torch relay. And there was a wider Olympic torch relay team, which was about, there were about 40 of us, I think, all together. And then there was one dedicated Paralympic person. So you were be... part of the broader torch relay team? Yes. you had. So were you involved in the general torch relay as well? Or were you specifically just in the... I say just, we'll talk yeah. in a minute about what just really means. <laughs> was that your only focus or were you dragged into this? So my only focus, my main focus was the Paralympics. And I think for London, that there were really great ambitions to try and repurpose all of the Olympic kind of focus to the Paralympics and to kind of do a dual operation. Hmm. I think in reality that it's really hard to focus on something that comes second when you've got something so massive in front of you that, that is first. So, yeah, the um, sort of the original plan, I think, was that I would go out on the Olympic torch relay as part of the team, but then it kind of became apparent that that really wasn't going to be possible and I can remember being in the office at Super Saturday at my uh, computer and hearing the roar of like mm. the amazing roar from the stadium just like a mile over kind of crazily typing away so I didn't really have a team I had kind of two people that, that worked with me quite near the end but the wider torch relay team then came in to deliver their op operational roles on the Paralympic relay as well if that makes sense. 
Yes. So they transferred over once they had finished. Yeah. Yeah, essentially. Um, so I don't think people, I know I didn't really understand quite the scale of, of torture relays and what it involves. Just tell us a bit about, I think we're all quite naive about this, but just explain what, how long it is, what you did, the scale of it. So the Olympic torture relay in 2012 was 70 days long and had some really big ambitions about taking in uh, being within one hour of 95% of the population of the whole UK. So essentially, in that 70 days, a big touring operation went all around the UK, visiting kind of all the highlands and islands and everywhere. And on any given day, you would have about 100 torchbearers who would be kind of organised, had been selected, nominated by their community. So these community champions, these heroes of kind of local sports coaches, people who've made a difference in their community, and they would be kind of bussed out by us to their start location. Then a whole police operation would kind of roll up. They would be kind of, their torch would be lit with the flame and then they would take off for their kind of 250 or 300 metre segment and then pass to the next torchbearer. And that kind of rolling operation going through towns and villages and cities every single day from kind of 8am until 5pm finishing off at an, a big concert so an evening celebration that would happen in a city every single day with screens and a stage show and the Paralympic torch relay was kind of 10 days of something similar to that but slightly different so we did uh, we did because we wanted to try to get to every capital city in the UK we did kind of we did Belfast then we did Cardiff then we did Edinburgh then we did a 24-hour relay from Stoke Mandeville which is the home of the Paralympic Games in Buckinghamshire, all the way down to the Olympic Stadium for the opening ceremony. But it's a massive, massive operation. It takes years of work to plan that. And just the 8,000 torchbearers for the Olympic Torch Relay, creating, making 8,000 torches, designing those, having them made, having 8,000 burners that work, having a massive police team, having enough hotel rooms to accommodate your kind of 70 strong or 100 strong crew that you need to operate all of those buses and all of those bits of the operation it's kind of a massive complex logistical jigsaw and the, one of the things that really struck me is that i would just never have even thought about was things like planning the route so you need to know where you're going you need to know whether the support vehicles can go down that route you need to think about if there's lots of crowds like but this isn't like one route on one day this is like a different route every single day running going through like you know countryside and city centers and, and it's just phenomenal you know is there a bridge that's too low or you know all of those things yeah. just don't think about at all you just see you know I went to see the person run near me and they just run past and you think oh that's nice yeah <laughs> you don't have no idea yeah. of the um of the sort of incredible organization yeah. Um, and were your, because um, yours was the Paralympic relay, did you have any special requirements for who the torchbearers were? So we had, so for both the Olympic torch relay and the Paralympic torch relay, kind of the, the nomination process was open to everyone. Um, so there was no kind of, there was no focus on any any difference really between the two, um, the two operations. It's slightly different nomination criteria, but both relays were accessible and we had we had, you know, a really wide range of, of torchbearers in both the Olympics and the Paralympics, which was amazing. And I think 
what's amazing about any relay it's not the logistics is amazing and the route team on the olympic torch relay were amazing and actually that's 10 years ago now we did not have as much kind of technology i don't think then as we do now a lot of a lot of the mapping systems and software that we have now is much stronger in 2012 you know the team were literally dictating into a dictaphone left turn after five meters right turn after three meters and then typing that up every day into a spreadsheet so that then when we got to the relay itself we could follow how you know what the route was because actually on any one day only really one person or two people have ever done that drive before so that they're like logistics and the attention to detail around that is mind-blowing and the team did an amazing job um, on the relay but what's amazing about a relay, the, the logistics are complex, no question. And it's very challenging and it's always going wrong. And it's kind of, you know, a real challenge. But what makes a relay is the torch bearers or the button bearers, those people who have been nominated by their peers, by their communities. And to meet those people on those days when they feel the most special person in the world is, from my point of view anyway, in my opinion, what is special about a relay and I I guess you know the the logistics is hard and that's kind of what we do all the time I suppose but really what what makes it special is those people who are being celebrated and it's their once in a lifetime thing yeah and for the team who are on day 69 of 70 really long days still delivering that same excitement kind of experience for those torchbearers or baton bearers to have that moment of a lifetime is everybody who I've ever worked with on a relay is really being an expert in whatever they do. It's quite amazing to behold, really. One of the things you you told me when we were talking uh, before about this is, is to you some of what you enjoy is when all of the different elements come together. So, you know, the kind of the stakeholders, the comms, you know, everything is, that's where you feel that's your particular strength is bringing all of that together. Can you say a bit more about that? So I think we've talked a bit about kind of the logistics piece of the relay. We've talked a bit about the kind of torchbearer or battenbearer piece. I think in my role in 2012, I was kind of responsible for looking after the Paralympic torch relay. So I, I think I was really lucky to have that opportunity and almost kind of forced upon me just because of the sheer scale of the Olympic torch relay that meant that I had to do probably more in the kind of management space than I think anyone had been expecting, including myself. So as part of that, I had much more of a role in kind of, I guess, working with our sponsors, working with kind of the sort of IPC, who the kind of the International Paralympic Committee, who sort of own the games, I suppose. And so what I really learned and kind of developed, I think, through that job more than any other was the idea of balancing stakeholder requirements and thinking about the kind of sheer size and scale of the operation outside of just kind of, okay, so here's the route and here are the people and this is how we need to get from A to B. And yes, we need 25 cars and 15 vans, but actually, yes, we need 15 vans, but actually three of those need to look after these sponsors and what do they need out of those three vans and you know what are they trying to achieve and how can we try to support them to get that so I think that's and that kind of as I've kind of moved out of that role and 
further through my career, I seem to end up in those kind of roles where I'm trying to balance a lot of stakeholders and a lot of requirements to try and deliver a product that benefits everyone um, in the best possible way whilst balancing kind of what everybody really wants. I think that's that's kind of just the way that I've evolved and it's I think it's one of my skills and I think it probably goes back to some of that English heritage Mm. kind of upbringing if you like I always say that I sort of grew up at English heritage in a lot of ways professionally and that sense of having this amazing castle but actually navigating well there's a whole visitor operation here so that bit is closed on a Sunday or we haven't got enough staff for that or how are we going to sell membership or you can't go on that bit of grass or you can't have a horse there but you can have one over there or all of that kind of understanding how to deliver a well-rounded, successful product, event product, whilst balancing all of these different perspectives. It's like a lot of spinning plates, I think. And if you let one fall, then they all kind of fall. So like navigating that, I think, is what's what I find really interesting about these big projects, really. You described it to me as it's like events on steroids. <laughs> Did I? Yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> yeah, it definitely feels like a culmination of lots of the other things that I've done through my career. So that idea of um, being able to deliver an event at a venue one for one day or for three days, if you think about like the relay or the trophy tour equivalent of that, it is delivering an event every five minutes and still needing that to be good and still needing it to have the right branding and have the safe kind of space for people and be well managed and be on time and so it is it's kind of the culmination of all of the events that I've ever worked on but now delivering them at speed whilst moving through in a vehicle probably and usually with the lens of the eyes of the world's media the media are looking at these events you know the Olympics and the Paralympics in 2012 I remember when we were in the planning stages our boss Steve saying to us regularly everyone is going to be watching us the eyes of the world are on us and we set the scene for what comes yeah so it is a bit like like events on steroids really just um you mentioned very briefly there I just wanted to if you could just talk a little bit about um some of the international stuff so you did the rugby world cup tour and that was internationally wasn't it so I'm gonna say a little bit about that because that must have been quite different I would have thought so I've been really lucky, I think, to do some international projects. So the Commonwealth Games, the Queen's Baton Relay that, that's just happened last year. We delivered a Queen's Baton Relay through 72 nations and territories of the Commonwealth. So that's probably been my biggest international project that I've been part of. And that was doubly challenging because it was delivered in the landscape of COVID. You know, I could bore you to tears of talking about kind of closing borders and restrictions and how we navigated our way through that. But yeah, I think so the, the International Rugby World Cup Trophy Tours delivered for 2015 and 2019 Rugby World Cup. So those would kind of be three or four days in a country. And the objective really of, of having that kind of World Cup trophy in those countries is to generate interest, excitement in the coming tournament, potentially to sell some tickets to promote the game. But importantly for, for World Rugby to kind of encourage new participants new fans and kind of to deliver value for those those fans that support the game so we would do a mixture of kind of events and activities whilst we were there so media press conference type events all the way through to appearances in fan zones at stadiums to school visits and kind of meeting 
the next generation of players. So it's always really interesting, I think, to do things internationally. And it's a real privilege to kind of work with lots of different people and really experience different ways of life. And I think it's, yeah, it's, it's definitely challenging. And I think you have to approach it with a really open mind and kind of an open heart. That sounds really corny, but mm. just trying to really understand people and our differences and work together is kind of really interesting. And I think as a kind of, I guess, as a strong woman and kind of someone who's used to having worked kind of with some autonomy, I suppose, um, sometimes culturally it's quite different internationally and navigating that on a personal level is really interesting. Mm. And yeah, there have been some kind of experiences where maybe I've had to take a kind of step back and let someone else speak on behalf of our team, for example, to get the best results. Yeah, which is which is interesting and just different to being at home sometimes. So, mm. but yeah, all a good learning experience, I think. So the final uh, event we're going to talk about, just I'd like you to talk a little bit about that you mentioned just there, the Commonwealth Relay. I mean, that was huge in scope and in the time of COVID. And I know that's something that really tested your resilience. <laughs> You're pulling a face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I mean, I think COVID tested everyone's resilience, right? To to a degree that I don't think people really could ever have anticipated. I know definitely it was personally really challenging for me, forgetting about work, just the idea of, you know, that weird landscape that we're all in. So I think it was really interesting to start a role in lockdown. So I started my role with the Commonwealth Games mid-lockdown, hadn't met anybody um, in person for kind of months. And I know there are lots of people who had that same experience and how much you lose by not being able to kind of shake hands with people or meet people in person or get a coffee or stand by the water fountain and just have a chat about the weekend. You lose so much opportunity to, I think, build relationships with people and you don't realise that that's the case until that doesn't exist for whatever reason. So that was massively challenging, I think, and trying to come up with new ways of communicating with people and motivating people, maybe, and just trying to, you know, every kind of conversation during lockdown, every five minute chat became a 25 minute Teams call, didn't it? You know, everything was forcibly formal somehow. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that puts everyone in a space of you know, tapping into their reserves potentially. And yeah, the Commonwealth kind of the Queen's Baton Relay. So we started our relay in October 2021. And it's quite long. So it takes about 10 months to do the whole journey around the Commonwealth and then back in and through through England. We had loads of challenges. And what was really interesting and really challenging was that where we were in the COVID recovery space was very different where everyone else around the world was. So we we were kind of vaccinated by that point, but there were lots and lots of parts of the world that hadn't had any COVID because they'd had their borders closed. For example, lots of the islands through Oceania before we set off on the relay hadn't had any border, any borders open for kind of a year and a half, hadn't had any COVID at all and then there were other countries that that didn't have the vaccine or weren't due to get the vaccine so we were kind of working on a constantly changing kind of operation really 
because today we could go into that country in a week's time, but then three days time, actually that country border had closed or all the flights had been cancelled or so it was kind of for the team, it was so challenging. And I think for me personally, I dipped into my reserves so much more for this this role than I ever have for anything else. And I think I've done lots of kind of crazy, crazy jobs, but this was kind of definitely challenging. And I think, well, I think what we missed out on was some of the fun stuff that goes with working on a big project. Mm -hmm. That's one of the best things about working on a games or a big project. Everyone's driving towards the same goal. Everyone's, you know, really trying to make this event happen and you work really hard, but the opportunity to really have a kind of a shared experience and a bond with people. I think that was one of the biggest things that we missed out on really through the past couple of years. And that helps to boost resilience, I think, that kind of shared experience and that shared kind of challenge. And so sometimes when you're at home on your laptop, you feel like you're the only one that feels like that and you're the only one who's experiencing that feeling. So yeah, it was, you know, it was it was hard. And I think it's kind of hard to keep things in perspective sometimes, isn't it? But actually in that COVID landscape and thinking about what we talked about when I was with the police, the things you think, the things you see and the things people experience at the end of the day, it's only a relay and it sounds kind of crazy. And I would never say those words out loud, but actually it's hard to find that balance sometimes of thinking Mm. actually, you know, if the baton doesn't get to this country and we've done everything we can, is it actually the end of the world and what's more important and how do we manage our stakeholders through that process? It was definitely an interesting project. Yeah, I bet you needed a good long sleep after that one. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) So if I was to ask you what advice you would give to wannabe events people, you know, so they've got an event to organise, large or small, what would be your top tips? I think my top tips would be start off with a plan, have a plan doesn't have to be a fancy plan, but have a think about uh, breaking that event down into its component parts and ha- think about how you're going to tackle each one of those. I think the second thing that I would say is be prepared for that plan to change and don't expect that because you've written that plan down for anything to stick where it is, but know what your component parts are and what you're trying to achieve. And then I think probably the third thing that I would say is um, have a good team because everything can be kind of solved with a cup of tea and some nice people around you really and you can figure everything out that way and where next for you and for barnstorm good question um i don't know the answer to that i think i do know the answer to that i just don't like saying it out loud i would love for barnstorm to be the kind of one-stop shop for moving events i would love for people to think I need someone to help me with a relay. Where should I go? And for them to think of us. I think there's a little way to go yet before that's what happens. Uh, but that's kind of our, that's our stretch target. But for now, I think we're just focused on doing the best job we can for our clients and continuing to deliver amazing experiences for people to enjoy, really. That sounds extremely corny, but it is <laughs> genuinely it's, um... what we enjoy. It sounds like it's really important to you. It's been a consistent theme that's come out about that these kind of once in a lifetime, these really special experiences for people. If you were to give advice to your younger self, what would it be? 
Um, so definitely my biggest piece of advice, my younger self would be network, network, network. And that is also my biggest piece of advice to anyone else. It's also a big piece of advice to myself now because I'm still terrible at it. But I think what's been consistent throughout my career is that everywhere I go, every job I do, everybody I meet knows somebody else who knows me or who knows somebody who I know. So the power that your network holds, I think, is quite often untapped. And I've got some really good friends who are brilliant at networking. And I watch them in awe because there are so many opportunities to unlock with a network. So yeah, networking, I think, is the buzzword. It's easier now, I think, than when I was younger, actually, with things like LinkedIn. It's more mm-hmm. acceptable to tap into people in that way. So mm-hmm. definitely, that's that's the key, I think, when you work. And if you were to give your story a strapline, a title, <laughs> full in a face, what might that be? It's probably something like Around the World in 80 Days or like <laughs> a bit like a Hobbit's Tale there and back again. <laughs> you know, it's probably something like that. Uh, I don't know what, what, what I would say. I think probably something about always having something really unusual in my hand luggage, trophy or a baton or a message from the <laughs> Queen or something. So, yeah, the tale of a thousand bags. <laughs> Love it. Thank you, Lisa. Our time is up, but thank you so much for your for your time. I've really enjoyed, I find it fascinating what you do, and I've really enjoyed uh, listening to you. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I really loved talking to Lisa and I particularly enjoyed hearing her real passion um, and enthusiasm for creating those once in a lifetime experiences and creating those really special days for people. Um, It really kind of gave me goosebumps actually and I felt quite emotional when she was talking about, um, you know, really working hard to create those experiences. So that was one thing that really stood out for me. I was also really um, interested in her experience of working as a woman internationally and how she sometimes had to uh, put her own needs aside and her own wants aside in order to achieve what she needed to achieve and perhaps let other members of the team take the lead. And I hear and um, I'm absorbing her advice to herself because I think it also applies to me and to many other people, but that power of networking and relationships and continuing to build that network throughout our careers. So thank you, Lisa, for that excellent piece of advice. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Secret Resume. If you did, remember to like, share, comment, and subscribe as that helps people like you find people like us.